1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 8 this morning. And if you don't have a Bible or you don't have the version we're using, which is the Christian Standard Bible, the, the verses will be on the screen behind me. Uh, but before we get into it, let's, uh, let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful that you have spoken to us through your word. We're grateful that it contains everything that we need uh, to learn and grow in godliness and that it gives us everything that we need to be equipped to be workers for your kingdom. And I pray that as we dive into the first eight verses of First Thessalonians 4, that you would help us to hear uh, areas in our life that we may have weakness and that we would see it and we would change so that we would bring you honor and glory in all that we do. It's in your son's precious name that I pray. Amen. So last week, as we went through the tail end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 all the way through chapter 3, we saw where Paul was longing uh, to go back to the believers in Thessalonica because they were afraid that the persecution that drove them away uh, would be intensified with the church uh, and that the lies that were being spread about Paul and his church planning companions uh, would be spread. And he was afraid that the young believers in Thessalonica would abandon their faith because of those things. And so Paul said at the tail end of chapter 2 that he tried again and again uh, to get back to the church, uh, but Satan was hindering their travel. And so sadly, uh, Paul and his companions, all they could do was pray and all they could do was worry about their brothers and sisters in Christ in Thessalonica. And then in uh, chapter 3, we saw that the anxiety that these men were feeling for this fledgling church, we saw that it grew to the point where they couldn't take it anymore. They had to do something. And it was decided that Timothy would go back to see what was happening among these people. And when he got there, uh, he was meant to bring encouragement and strength to them as they're struggling through uh, the persecution that they was uh, in, in enduring. And he was meant to help those who had maintained their walk with God during this difficult time. Uh, little did they know, um, because little did they know that this was actually going to be a good visit with them because uh, they did not have any issues retaining that faith. Paul had feared the worst. He was afraid that Satan had, had tempted these people away from their faith. Uh, he was concerned that uh, the work that they had done in Thessalonica would come to nothing. Uh, but as it turns out, when Timothy comes back to Paul and their friends, he shares with the church that the church in Thessalonica was thriving. They were thriving amid their persecution. He brings back the, the stories that this church had fond memories of Paul. So the lies that were being spread about him, that it meant nothing to them. They loved Paul. They, were, they longed to see Paul again. And so they had kind of the same angst about getting together that Paul had. And Paul received this report and we read that he wondered how he could give thanks to God for them in return for all the joy that he experienced because of them. He loves this church. He loves this church dearly. And he runs out of words to figure out how to thank God for this church. And we see at the end of chapter 3, he does offer up the, this, these prayers for them. Uh, and in that prayer, he asked for three things. Number one, he asked that the Lord would direct their path back to Thessalonica. Even though he got a positive report, he wants to see these people again. He loves these people. 
Uh, the next thing he asked for is that the Lord would cause their love for everyone to increase and overflow in the same way that his affection for them has. And so he wants them to feel about each other and the, the city around them the way that he feels about them. He wants to see that grow in them. And finally, he asked that the Lord would make their hearts holy and blameless before God the Father at the second coming of Jesus. He wants them to grow in godliness as they await Christ's return. And you know, that's what we all should be doing is growing in godliness as we wait for Christ's return. And one of the ways that he wants them to grow in godliness is going to be talked about in our verses for this morning. All right, so he, he's got a couple of things at the, at the tail end of 1 Thessalonians that he's going to direct them towards. And one of those we're going to see in verses 1 to 8 this morning. So let's read that. Follow along with me as I read that. Beginning in verse 1, Paul says, Additionally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received instruction from us on how you should live and please God as you are doing, do this even more. For you know what commands he gave, we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. This means one must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses, as we also previously told and warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. So what we're seeing in these verses is a struggle that's going on in the lives of the Thessalonian church. The wording that Paul uses here indicates that what is being brought up has been readdressing something that has been taught previously. Right, we can see that in verses 1 and 2. There, Paul says, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus. And then he says, as you have received instruction from us. So he's calling back to something that he has previously taught them. He says, as you have received instruction from us on how you should live and please God as you are doing, do this even more. And he says, for you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So call him back again. Hey, we've told you that... The, these things in your life are unacceptable. This is, goes against the nature and character of God, and you need to stop doing these things. Right? There's an emphasis here on these issues uh, because Paul is saying, hey, we've talked about this before. We have addressed this with you, and I want to see you grow in your faith. Right? Where you are is keeping you stalemated in your faith and you cannot grow beyond that until you get these sin issues out of your life he wants to see them grow in their faith whenever we come to faith we are like a spiritual infant i don't know if you've had an infant in your house recently but they're kind of worthless they're cute but that's about it all right um so when we come to faith Sometimes we're cute, but we, we don't know a whole lot about God. We don't know a whole lot about what it means to follow Christ. Uh, we don't know a whole lot about the nature and character of God. Uh, many don't know a whole lot about the Bible. right? And all they know at the moment of their salvation is that they are a sinner in need of a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. And so many people are starting at ground zero in their faith. Uh, and at this point in their lives there might not be a whole lot of visible change that happens. Right? Most of these people are coming to faith out of a pagan context. 
And so to have any understanding or notion what it means to follow Christ would be completely foreign to them. And so their profession of faith in Jesus may not lead them to live a different life yet. Right? They have not been discipled. They don't know a whole lot about God's nature and character. And so they're probably going to continue to sin in similar ways that they've been sinning their whole life because they don't know any different. Right? Or at least it's been brought up, but only in passing. And Paul wasn't there long enough to really hammer home these uh, commands of the Lord. And so there's a sin issue in their life that they're continuing to struggle with. Uh, Paul has addressed it in the past, and, and Paul wants to see them, to see them overcome this issue. But why? Why is this so important to Paul to see them move beyond what they are currently struggling with? Well, the reason for that is because the goal of the Christian faith is to bring glory and honor to God and being as much like Christ as we can be. Right? So if you're in here today and you're, you call yourself a Christian, you're, the goal of your life should be to honor God, to bring God glory, and to be as much like Jesus as you can possibly be. And this is what he wants for this church because God's expectation for us is perfection all the time. Every time, without missing the mark even once in our entire life. But unfortunately, that's not possible for us because we are born with a sin nature. Our, our nature from birth is inherently to go against the things of God, to go towards the things that I want, the things that make me happy, the things that make me feel good. Uh, we, we see this clearly in the nature of children. Going back to this idea of infants or, or just young children in general, like we don't have to teach kids to be selfish. Right? We have to teach them to be generous. Right? We don't have to teach kids to hit or to bite. We have to teach kids not to hit. We have to teach kids not to bite. Right? We don't have to teach them to lie. We have to teach them not to lie. It's just inherent in who we are from birth to go against the nature and character of God. Right? And since we are sinful from birth, it's impossible for us to achieve righteousness on our own. Now, you can never do enough good to outweigh the bad. Right? It, it's not going to be the situation where you are going to put the good and the bad on, this, on the balance scale at the end of your life and to see which one balances out. That's karma. That's not Christ. What happens at the end when we face Christ in judgment is if there's even one thing on the evil side of that scale, it's condemnation, it's wrath, it's eternal separation from God forever. That's the reason why we need Jesus to be our righteousness for us. Now, Jesus had to step out of glory. Jesus had to come to earth as a man. He had to live perfectly the life that we couldn't live. He had to go to the cross, have the wrath of God poured out on him, so that we could be presented with His righteousness. And without that righteousness, we are lost. There is no hope for us. This is where salvation is absolutely necessary in our life. Because we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are children of wrath. We are condemned forever because of our sinful nature. Right? But... When we come to faith in Christ, when we suddenly have our eyes open to the truth, you are a sinner in need of a Savior, and there's nothing you can do on your own to merit that salvation. When you see that and you accept it, that's when we come from death to life. 
You know, oftentimes people are like, I want to see a miracle. You, if you profess faith in Christ, are a miracle. You are a dead person who has come alive. You had a heart of stone that has become a heart of flesh. If you love Jesus in here today, you are a walking miracle. When we come from death to life, we begin a process called sanctification. All right, Paul talks about sanctification in verse 3. He says, for this is God's will, your sanctification. All right, Sanctification is just a fancy way of saying becoming like Jesus. All right, sanctification is the process of growing in godliness, becoming more like Christ. It's a lifelong process. Like, there will never be a day when Chris Hamblin walks up here and goes, hey guys, guess what? I have arrived. And if you know me, you know it's true. <laughs> I have so far to go that I'm nowhere close. We, we are constantly in this process of becoming more and more like Jesus. And what happens is, the more you become like Jesus, the more you realize you're not like Jesus. It's a vicious cycle. You finally, you're like, oh, I've got all this sin in my life. I need to clean it up. And you clean it up and you're like, hey, I'm more like Christ now. And you step up and you look and you're like, dang. There's more to do. And there's always more to do. It's a lifelong process. We can never achieve perfection. Uh, and it's not an easy process even after salvation. Right? It's not like all of a sudden your sin goes away. Right? You, you still have a sin nature that's inherent in you. It's just you're no longer a slave to that sin. You have an option to go your way or God's way. Right? The problem is we never get rid of that sin nature in our whole life. Something we're going to battle with. We will battle to bring God honor and glory every single day. Every single moment of every single day. It's a nonstop battle. And Paul gets so exasperated by this battle with his sin that he says this in Romans 7, 22-25. He says, For in my inner self I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am. This is the Apostle Paul. Wrote most of the New Testament. He says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. In his head, he knows this is how he's supposed to act. In his heart, he knows this is how he's supposed to act. But then his body says, nope, we're going to do it my way. Nonstop struggle his whole life. Nonstop struggle our whole life. I know for a fact, if we are honest with ourselves, if we would be honest with each other just a little bit, we would all say similar things that Paul confesses here in Romans 7, right? Do you struggle? If you're not nodding your head, you're a liar. Right? We sit here, we think, I know what's right. Maybe you've been in church for 50, 60 years. You've been to... The, You've been to Sunday school. You've been to small group. You've been to Sunday night service. You know what's in the Bible. You see it clearly in the Bible. You feel the rightness of it in your soul because you, you've, you're created in the image of God. So even if you are walking away from the Lord, you still know that's not right. I'm not supposed to act this way. right? Because God's nature and character is inherent in us as well. We know when we're wrong, but when we're walking away from the Lord, we just don't care. 
right? We know this, but we just want to do the sinful thing more than we want to fight against ourselves and do what God calls holy and righteous. And we, we all struggle with that. And unfortunately, due to our sin nature, this never goes away. I don't care how long you've been a believer in Christ. You're going to have this fight. You're going to have this wrestle. Uh, and for the Christian, I like to think of it this way. This is a, an illustration that I came with, up with when I was in seminary. Uh, the Christian life is like uh, paddling uphill uh, in a constantly flowing river in a kayak or canoe. Like you're, you're going uphill, right? At the top, at the mouth of this river is godliness. It's the perfection that we're striving for. It's being like Christ. At the bottom of this hill is the world. So to get down is real easy. You just don't do anything. Or, you know, some of us, that we know people that are really paddling really hard to get to the end, right? But the water is like our sin nature. It, it is constantly flowing. It never stops. We are constantly battling against that to go upstream, to go towards godliness. And as a, as a Christian, the Holy Spirit resides in us, and when we tap into His power, we can make progress up the stream. Right? If we try to do it in our own strength, we're going to fail. You're going to wear out, and guess what happens when you stop paddling? You go downstream. Right? And you are going to wear out of your own strength at some point. But when we tap into the Holy Spirit, He gives us the power. We can make our way upstream. But sometimes we don't wear out, do we? Sometimes we just give up. We don't want to fight the good fight anymore. We want the sin that is so enticing, that stands out. It looks so good. It lies to us and says, if we just get this, there's life there. There's happiness there. There might even be joy there. We know that's a lie. But it, it sits there and we go, I'm not paddling anymore. I'm just going to see where this current takes me for a while. We do that, life gets hard, or the conviction of the Holy Spirit begins to weigh on us, and it reminds us of who we are. It reminds us of our goal to be honoring and glorifying to God, to be like Christ. And then when that happens, the Holy Spirit helps us move upstream again. That's the constant pace of the Christian life. There is no sitting still. There is no neutral here. When you stop paddling, when you stop trying to be like Christ, you begin to be like the world. It's just the nature of who we are. And this is an exhausting process. Right? Sometimes we can make these giant leaps. We make these giant bounds up the stream. We experience this great growth in our spiritual uh, nature. Right? But sometimes the sin that we're trying to overcome, it makes us feel like we're not making any progress at all. Like, dang it, I am still suffering from this sin that I've been battling for the last 10, 20, 30 years. I still have anger issues. I still road rage. Right? I still value my comfort more than I value serving other people sometimes. It's still a battle. And sometimes we just say, I'm tired and I'm just going to take a break. And then we begin to drift back down the stream. Right? The one thing that we're never doing is staying right where we are. When you stop, you start going downstream. If we're not pursuing after God, then we're beginning to move down the stream. Uh, even if the loss of ground at the time seems so minuscule that we don't even notice we're doing it. Right? When, I, when, I, 
we talked about this in the new members class this morning. Uh, in college, I, I experienced some church hurt, and I decided not to go to church for a while. If that's the church, then I don't need it, right? It was my mindset. And at first, it was fine. Now, I was a regular Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I would come to church from in high school. I'd covered in dirt from a baseball game. I, I, I was there if the doors were open. And I experienced church hurt there, and I decided if that's the church, I don't need it. I can worship God on my own. That's a lie. It's a lie from the pit of hell. So I went to college, spent about three and a half years not going to church, or not at least not significantly, and I was miserable. I didn't realize how miserable I was until I got back involved with the church again. right? Because it was such a slow descent into worldliness that I didn't really notice how miserable I was. Right, but eventually that water, it picks up steam. You know, it might be moving slow when we first stop paddling, when we first decide to pursue whatever sin it is that we're going after, but eventually it picks up steam and it can spiral us out of control if we're not careful. Right, this is one of the reasons why being part of the church is so important. Like, I don't know if you've noticed, but I, I hammer on this a lot. Like, it is important for you to be here. It is important for you to be with the people of God and not just for an hour on Sunday morning. You know, we need each other because when we begin to make that descent down the stream, who's there to stop us but the church? God has given us the Holy Spirit and the church to make sure that we keep going. We encourage one another. We bear one another's burdens. We confront when we are walking a sinful path. That is the beauty of the church. And this is what we should be longing for, not something that we do if we have time. Right? We should be carving out time in our week for this purpose, to grow together, to love one another, to know what's going on in our lives. Because so, if you don't know that I'm struggling, how can you help me when I begin that descent away from honoring and glorifying God? You can't. That's why we have to be open with one another and spend time together, right? God has blessed us with people who love us, who want to see the best for us. And, and we know that the best for us is being like Christ, not in pursuing whatever it is that we're currently going after. And so when we begin to drift, the church sees it, the church can warn us about that, right? Before we lose too much ground in the current, before it picks up too much steam and it's even harder to get back out of that. We need the church. And if we are willing to know people, and if we are willing to be known by people, the church can help us overcome a multitude of sins. And I mentioned this in the new members class as well. Like The cross out you as a sinner, guys. You're a sinner. I know it. Everyone in this room knows it, especially those that are closest to you. You are a sinner. There's nothing that you're going to bring to this this place that is not common to the struggle of everyone else in this place. So you putting on that fake face, that fake smile, pretending that everything is okay is absolutely pointless. We know it's a lie. You might be having a good day, but you're not going to have all good days. Right? We know that you're a sinner. The church can help with that. Right? Including the sin of sexual immorality, which was a standout problem at the church 
in Thessalonica. And this is what Paul is speaking to directly in chapter 4. Right, in chapter 4, verse 3, Paul tells the Thessalonian church that God's will for their lives is their sanctification, which I explained is becoming more like Christ. And one of the issues that they need to address is staying away from sexual immorality. Now here, Paul only gives us the problem without defining uh, what is right and good about sexuality. So I wanted to mention that before we speak about the issue that the Thessalonians are dealing with because a lot of times... Uh, the church can sometimes make people think that sex is a bad thing, that it's a dirty word. And all of a sudden, it's, it's a dirty word all the way up until you get married, and all of a sudden, you're supposed to just not consider it a dirty word anymore. Right, so I want to explain a little bit here that properly considered, sex is a good and gracious gift of God that was given to humanity to be enjoyed and to be used to procreate solely in the confines of marriage between one man and one woman. Right, do you see how specific I said that? One man and one woman. I'm doing that on purpose. Right? In Genesis chapter 2, Moses wrote in verses 24 and 25 that a husband and wife, they leave their family of origin and they come together and become one flesh. That one flesh relationship is a sexual relationship. Right? And it says there that they were naked and unashamed. Right? There was nothing standing between the man and the woman in the perfection of the garden. Right? That one flesh union that is spoken of here is meant to occur solely and specifically within biblical marriage. And again, I said biblical marriage. Right? Our culture has taken the word marriage and it has distorted that word to not mean what it actually means. A biblical marriage is one man and one woman for life and there is supposed to be a sexual relationship that is part of that. There's meant to be nothing that stands between a husband and wife in their knowledge of one another and in their intimacy with one another. Like that, the husband-wife relationship is our primary relationship on this earth. It should go God, spouse, kids, church, everything else. In that order. So my first and foremost most precious relationship is my relationship with Kelly. Her first and foremost most precious relationship should be with me and everything else should take a back seat to that relationship. Nothing should stand in the way of our knowledge of one another and our intimacy with one another. And that's how it should be with everyone who has a, a spouse in here today. Right? So when sin entered the world though, that intimacy between the man and the woman is broken. And we see immediately in Genesis 3 that they realize that they're naked and they seek cover. They immediately go, they dive in the bushes, they're trying to hide from God, and they, they try to hide from one another as well. That intimacy is broken. And when questioned about their sin, the woman throws the serpent under the proverbial bus. Right? What happened? He made me do it. And then what does Adam do? She made me do it. So that relationship broken, like dude sleeping on a couch for a while at this point, right? Like you're not, you're not coming back from that real soon. So it's obvious that their emotional and their physical intimacy has been broken. Right? And now that sinner has entered the world, there's going to constantly be a battle to maintain emotional and physical intimacy within the marriage. It's just the nature of our sinful, broken world. Paul 
being single at the time when he wrote these letters, it's believed that he probably had a wife at some point. Uh, but he's single when he wrote these letters to the new church, uh, the, to the new churches in the New Testament. And he states, being single is better than being married because being single gives you the opportunity to serve the kingdom of God. So if you can be single, be single. Right? It, it, you're not ostracized. It's not like there's something wrong with you if you're just cool with not being in a relationship with someone. He says, if you can do it, you should do it because that frees you up to do whatever the, God, the Lord calls you to do. Right? You're not tied down to family. You don't have to consider, you know, do I, can I speak to my wife about this? Do I need to tell my kids about this? You know, when something happens, you can just go and do, right? So, but Paul acknowledges that some people do not have the gift of being single. Right? They crave companionship. They crave uh, a sexual relationship. And so Paul speaks to this in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 7. He says, Now, in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer, then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. So there he's saying, be single if you can be. So it's not a command. You don't have to get married. But if you're burning with passion, then get married. In verse 7, he says, I wish that all people were as I am so that they could serve God more. But as each has his own gift from God, one person has this gift, another has that. So Paul says that sex within the confines of marriage should be regular enough to keep Satan from tempting you due to your lack of self-control. Right? There's no prescription for how much that is. But it should be regular enough that there should be no ability for Satan to step in there and begin to tempt. Right? If there are long periods of time between sexual activity and marriage, Paul says that that long period of time should be agreed upon by the husband and wife. It should be used only to make room for prayer. So this is almost like a type of fasting that is agreed upon by both in the couple, and both in the couple should be spending that time in prayer and then that should be a set amount of time. And when that time is up, you should come back together into the marriage bed. Right? So Paul literally says it's your responsibility in your marriage to go to bed with your spouse regularly. Enough to keep temptation away. Right? Now, I have heard people try to use this particular passage to spiritually browbeat one of their sp the one spouse because someone has more sexual desire than the other spouse. And so they go to 1 Corinthians 7 and they say, your body doesn't belong to you, it belongs to me. That's heinous. That's disgusting. Shame on you if, that, if you have ever done that. Now, I'm not saying that there's not forgiveness for that, but you should not use the Bible to browbeat people into getting what you want. You've kind of missed the point. 
right? Paul is clear in Philippians 2 that we are to consider others as more important than ourselves. So in my relationship, if I'm doing things the way that I'm supposed to do things, I'm the least important in that relationship. And then if it's a good marriage, your spouse should be doing the same thing. So instead of jockeying with one another for superiority, you should be jockeying with one another to see who can serve the other one better, who can lay down their lives more. We should be doing that for everybody, but especially in the most important relationship that we have. Paul will say in Ephesians that my marriage to Kelly is a representation of Christ's relationship with the church. So that is primary in this world for me. I hope it's primary in this world for you. But I've also heard people misuse this passage in Philippians to get out of regular sex with their spouse. You're supposed to put my needs before your needs. Heinous. It's wrong. You're using the Bible wrong. You should be ashamed. Repent and change. All right? We do not use the Bible to get what we want. There should be, in the marriage bed, there should be mutual willingness to sacrifice some for your spouse. There is always one who wants sex more than another. Always. And there has to be compromise. There has to be one who's willing to come this way a little bit and the other one who's willing to come that way a little bit and then y'all meet in the middle on an arranged agreement. And this might make you blush a little bit, but I don't care, right? As far as what happens in the marriage bed, that's between you and your spouse, okay? Like I've, I've had people come to me, they're seeking marriage counseling, premarital counseling, and they're like, what's allowed, all right? As long as as what you're interested in doing doesn't bring shame or disgust to your spouse or is not already declared unrighteous before the Lord, like bringing someone else into the bed, watching pornography with your spouse, anything like that, then sky's the limit. All right? You do not have to wonder, like, is is this allowed? Is this not allowed? Do you both agree to it? And is there any other issues that come into play here did you are you bringing someone else in are you watching other people have sex that is not okay right as long as what you're doing doesn't bring disgust or disrespect to your spouse and as long as it doesn't break the nature of the marriage covenant itself then have fun right have fun now with all that said Let's address what Paul is actually talking about in this passage. Okay? The Thessalonians are struggling with sexual immorality. So there is something outside of that marriage relationship that they are engaging in, and God is saying, stop. Paul is saying, stop. Right? It doesn't say what the type of sexual immorality is. We don't know exactly what it is that they're struggling with, but the word that Paul uses here is just a general term that encompasses all different types of sexual immorality. Right? The Greek term that he uses here is pornea. Now, you, you hear that and you might think, hey, that sounds a lot like pornography. That's where the word comes from. Pornography is sexual immorality that stems from this idea of doing something outside of the marriage bed. Right, So 
It's a general term for any type of sexual sin. It includes prostitution. It includes adultery. It includes fornication. It includes bestiality. It includes polygamy. Like whatever it is that is outside of one man uh, homosexuality, all of that is outside of the grounds for the sexual covenant. Supposed to be within marriage, one man, one woman, right? So it's, it's common in this area at this time that there would be uh, temple prostitutes. So you have just your regular prostitutes, ladies looking to get paid uh, for having a good time, right? You have your temple prostitutes. So this would be engaging in like uh, ritualistic sex for uh, the fertility gods, and, and things like that. So you would go to a temple, a, a Greek temple, and you would find some prostitutes there. Um, it could be uh, just as, you know, casual sex that could be spoken of here, right? One, there's no such thing as casual sex. Two, um, any, fornication is just sex outside of marriage. And so everything else falls underneath that if you're doing something outside of marriage, right? And then there's just, just this ever-present struggle with lust. Any of that might be what Paul's talking about here. Paul says, control yourself. Control your bodies. As followers of Christ, they are not slaves to their sin any longer. Right? They can resist their temptation. Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, says, No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide you the way out so that you may be able to bear it. So no matter what temptation that you are facing, it doesn't have to be sexual temptation. It could be any temptation. But Paul says that in all of that temptation, there is going to be a way out. It might not be a pleasant way out. Right? You could flee the way that Joseph fled from Potiphar, but that ends up getting him put in prison. He still honored God, would rather be in prison than to dishonor the Lord, dishonor Potiphar by sleeping with Potiphar's wife. But there was a way out, and he took it, and he, he honored God in that. But it still caused him to struggle. Right? Another way out of temptation. Memorize Scripture. Right? We, we can't use the word if we don't know the word. And so we need to be spending time in our Bible so that we can battle against temptation. This is what Christ did when Satan came at him in the desert. He, combat, he combats everything that's presented by Satan with the word of God. And he's not trying to duke it out hand to hand with the prince of this world. He goes to the word of God and Satan flees from him. Right? What, maybe you're being tempted. Maybe there's a flirtatious secretary at your job. Quit your job. That's not easy. But move. Maybe you've got a flirtatious neighbor. Right? None of these things are necessarily easy, but nothing is too extreme from getting away from your temptation. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this about lust in Matthew 5, 27-30. He says, you have heard what it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, he's not actually telling you to mutilate yourself to avoid lust. Because here's the problem. It's not your eyes. It's not your hand. It's your heart. 
Everything that you're struggling with, every temptation that is presented, it comes from your heart. So actually moving is not going to get the lustful temptation away from you if that is something that you struggle with. Right? If you covet your neighbor's things because they have a nice shiny Corvette and you would like to have a nice shiny Corvette, you moving away from the nice shiny Corvette is not going to change your heart because it's a heart issue. All you're doing is moving the, the situational heat away from your life and it's going to pop back up somewhere else. So it's a heart issue. It has to be dealt with a heart uh, change. But what Jesus is saying here is take extreme measures to get yourself away from those temptations. Right? Don't, but again, do not actually pluck out your eye. Do not actually cut off your hand. Right? But there is a way that you as a follower of Christ should conduct yourself. We should strive to bring honor and glory to God. We should strive for that more than anything else that we strive for in this life. And we should look different from the world because of it. That striving should set us apart from an, a highly sexualized world. All right, so he says, do not transgress or take advantage of a brother or sister in Christ. Right, there's something inherently wrong with the idea that we're going to walk into the church and we're going to take advantage of the church. Right? Like, I, don't, I don't know how much you know about me, but if you intentionally go into a relationship with my wife to take advantage of my wife in any way, shape, or form, we're going to have more than words. Right? I love my wife more than anything else in this world. Right? And so if you come at her with wrong intentions, we are going to have more than words. And yet there are people who think that they're going to come into the church that is the bride of Christ and to take advantage of the bride of Christ. And it, if you're not afraid of me, you better be afraid of Jesus. All right? It says the Lord is going to avenge these sins. And something was happening. We don't know exactly what, but Paul's bringing it up for a reason. Some people in this church were taking advantage of their brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe they were intentionally being, you know, lying about something or just misusing a situation, right? As two people begin to grow in their relationship with Christ, they can kind of mistake that for uh, attraction to one another. This is one of the reasons why you never date somebody that you went on a mission trip with. You never date someone that you work together with at a Christian camp, right? Because you have experiences that are shared that you don't really share with anybody else. And it can create false feelings of affection that aren't going to last beyond whatever that thing is. But Paul says here, you better watch your step. Because if you take advantage of these people in this church for your own gain, the Lord will avenge that. I don't even want to think about what that means, but we need to be mindful of that. When we come in this place, we better have the utmost respect for the, our brothers and sisters in Christ. We strive to, to love one another, bear one another's burdens. We do not strive to take advantage of anyone in this place. And if you do, you better be prepared to reap the whirlwind, whatever that looks like. All right? Paul then says that we have not been called 
to live in impurity, but in holiness. I mentioned this a little bit last week. Right? Oftentimes, when it comes to our walk with God or the, how we interact with the world, we ask the wrong question. We're constantly looking at this show and saying, is it sinful for me to watch this show? Right? Can I step this close to the sin line and still be okay? Right? Okay, well, that, that one has a sex scene, but it's not that bad. So maybe we'll go with this show that has lots of sex scenes. Right? Is that sin? What if I cover my eyes during the, during the bad parts? Like, can I get that close to sin without falling in? And eventually, if you keep doing that, you will eventually fall into sin. You're asking the wrong question. What we should be doing is, does this bring God honor and glory? If the answer is no, don't do it. Right? Can I get closer to God? Can I be holier by going, to, going this route instead of this route? Can I bring God honor and glory by quitting this job because the temptation is great here? Or can I, can I bring Him more honor and glory serving somewhere else? Like we're asking the wrong questions. If you are constantly saying, is this sin? Is this sin? Is this sin? Then you're going to fall into sin. The question that we should be asking is, is this holy? Is this righteous? Is this holy? Is this righteous? And if it's not, we should take steps to get away from it. Is this as holy as I can be? And Paul says, if you reject this calling, you're rejecting God. Right? I don't understand how we can have this false idea of who God is we, we only emphasize one, nature, one part of his nature and character, his love for us. And we disregard everything else that he has said in the Bible, and then we think that we're okay. But in reality, when, we're, when we do that, when we say, well, God loves me, he's going to forgive me anyway, I can do whatever I want. Right? Because didn't the pastor once say that at the cross, my sins were forgiven past, present, and future? Well, I can live however I want to. Paul will say, what? are you crazy? No. Let it never be that way in your mind. We are to honor God with everything that we think, say, and do. And when we fail, we should repent of that and get away from it as quickly as possible. And those who are constantly diving into sexual impurity, they're, they're, they're rejecting God. All right? It's not casually you know, just dabbling in something. It's rejecting God. And so when we reject this teaching, it's not our spouse that we're rejecting. It's not our church that we're rejecting. We're rejecting God. And so we need to think about this, all right, which brings us to our application today. Number one, two things that I want to talk about. Number one, dive into your walk with the Lord. Like, don't casually paddle in to the kiddie pool when it comes to your faith. Dive in. Go after as much godliness as you can achieve in this life. Like, why would you want to stay as a spiritual infant? Paul is going to tell the Corinthians, you, at this point in your life, you should be teaching the Word of God. And here I am trying to explain the most basic aspects of the gospel to you. Like that's not, that's not what I want to be confronted with at the end of my life. When I stand before God and I give that account of my life, I, wanna, I want to regret not being as much like Jesus as I can possibly be. 
I want to regret the service opportunities that I didn't take. Right? I don't, I don't want there to be regret that I didn't get as much treasure in heaven because I was too worried about saving up earthly treasure. Dive into your sanctification. Rip out the things in your life that are constantly pulling you away from God. Don't toy with it. Don't pretend like it's not having an effect in your life. Rip that stuff out. Walk away from it. Become more and more like Christ. And be with the church so that we can help. Right? If you're struggling with sin, we need to know. So that we can love you well, serve you well. We can be praying for you. We can keep you accountable. Like, let us help you. Number two, we need to flee from sexual immorality. Like, Joseph, leave your shirt wherever you were and get away. Right? This is not something that we can toy with. It's not something that we can dabble with. This is something that goes directly to the heart. Right? We can't go around with the mindset of, I didn't actually do it because... Jesus doesn't leave us that option. He says that lusting after someone in your heart is the same as committing adultery with them in their bed. And we have to flee sexual immorality. Because in this world, nothing is going to make us stand out any greater in our culture than having a strong sexual ethic that does not allow for these types of temptations. It means we guard what we watch. It guards who we spend our time with. We guard our marriage with an intensity that is unrecognizable in any of our other relationships. What is, what is going on in your life? All right, maybe this is not a temptation for you. You've got something. Right? Maybe it's not this. But you've got something. You need to flee from that temptation. And the Lord is giving you the ability to flee that. But if this is your temptation, to reject this, Paul says, is to reject God. So we can't constantly live a life that has no feeling of guilt or regret when it comes to sexual sin and then still think, hey, I'm good. God and I are good. That is not what the Bible says. So if there's anything that you guys are struggling with, if you need to talk to me about it, I'm here for you. I would love to serve you in that way. I'd love to pray for you. I would love to help overcome these issues in your life. Let's pray together. Father, I'm grateful that you have promised us that there is no sin that is tempting us that is greater than our ability to get away from it. I'm grateful that salvation has broken the the chains of slavery to sin. We have a way out, and I pray that we would be looking for that way out anytime that we are experiencing uh, sexual temptation. I pray that our marriages would be strong, that when it comes to our first priority, that the marriages in this church would, would look to you to be that rock, that anchor, and that nothing else would distract, nothing else would take away from it. Lord, I pray that we would understand that uh, sexual desires are can be intense and that we would have two people in these relationships that long to serve you and to serve their spouse well. So I pray that this, this sermon will open up conversations, that this 
sermon will strengthen the bedroom and the, the marital relationship of every uh, marriage in here today. Lord, I pray that there would be a mindset of striving for sexual purity in all that we think, say, and do. I ask all of this in your son's precious name. Amen.